Please open your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel according to Micah. The Gospel according to Micah. Yes, Micah's prophecy in the Old Testament is where we'll be looking, chapter 7, the verses that will be at the head of this sermon this morning. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, and then we'll once again seek the face of God. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act or transgression of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from the days of old. Well, let's seek the face of our God once again. Let's pray. Father, we long that we long to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So by the working of your spirit, help me to articulate your truth. By the working of your spirit, write your word upon our hearts that the Lord Jesus Christ would get all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible's a big book and written over thousands of years, 1,500 years, I believe, and it's been uh, more than 40 authors. I've heard all the numbers. I didn't go back and check them all. The point wasn't that I needed to give you every little detail. The point is that it's a big book, and it seems to have a lot of different stories and a lot of different nuggets, even as we heard this morning. But there is a, there is a reality that runs through the entirety of Scripture. It's God revealing himself to us, God revealing himself to us as the God who has come to redeem sinners to himself. To come to this world filled with his creatures who are dead in their trespasses and sins and to call them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so anywhere you dip really into the scriptures, you can find something uh, about that story. That's why the Bible is summarized by some as a redemptive history. It's the history of God's redeeming purposes and plan. And so we can find pictures and promises, predictions and pieces of the story throughout the scriptures. This morning, I'd like for us to look at the book of Micah with that gospel in view. To see what Micah has to say to us about the good news. I have three points as we look at these verses as kind of the shape of all that we'll see in the book of Micah this morning. This passage spotlights a gracious judge. It points to a deserved judgment and it brings us to a divine provision. Spotlights a gracious judge, points to a deserved judgment, and highlights or points out or leads us to a divine provision. 
Notice with me, first of all, this passage spotlights a gracious judge. The theme or the picture of the courtroom appears in several different places in the book of Micah. And we see it here toward the end as we come before the judge, as it were, and hear Micah tell us something about this judge. He says, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? This passage highlights for us the fact that Micah understood God to be a forgiving judge. He uses the word pardon, a word which speaks of lifting of a burden, the lifting of the burden of sin. He, deals, it, he says the judge deals with the guilt of the crime and the guilty conscience. He, he lifts that. That's what this forgiving judge does. He pardons iniquity. He also passes over the rebellious act. Now that word rebellious act, uh, well, we'll come to that in a minute, but the word pass over speaks of, of not holding it to your account, not uh, continuing to, to hold it against you. There, the, the punishment has been dealt with. There's no punishment that remains for you. That crime that you've committed has been passed over. And so there is no one who could bring a charge against the one whom God has already justified. The one whom God has already declared not guilty. Micah says as he comes to the end of, of his prophecy, he says, Who is a God like you, who lifts the burden of our guilt, who removes the punishment that we deserve? who takes it away. He goes on to express a little bit more of what that means when he goes on to say, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He is a God who, who delights in loving kindness. I'm not sure why the New American Standard chose a different word here when it says that he does not retain his anger forever. He delights in unchanging love. The word unchanging love is my favorite Hebrew word, chesed, loving kindness, extreme mercy. He said God delights in this kind of mercy, showing this kind of mercy to his creatures, and in particular to those whom he has pardoned, and in the way of pardon, this is part of his loving kindness to his creatures. He says his loving kindness is shown in the fact that he doesn't retain his anger forever. Oh, I remember as a boy, uh, my dad being angry with me. Oh, and oftentimes rightly so. Generally, it was really deserved. Most of them got missed, I think. <laughs> but the fact was, I, I can remember that he would come and the discipline would come. And I don't know which was worse, the belt or the, or the speech that came before it. But we got this instruction and always said, this is what you did wrong. And here's what you should have done. And this is why I'm doing this. And here's what you're going to get. And now we got it. And, and then he would hug us. And then he would talk to us. And it was like it never happened. The anger was over. The anger was gone. The anger was satisfied. And Micah says, as he talks about this God who is this gracious judge, he says this God who forgives is, is a God who delights so that 
when the sin is dealt with, it's gone. He doesn't recall it anymore. He, he delights in, instead of sh in showing loving kindness and, and heaping delight on them. His anger is satisfied. You know that word that we spent some time looking at in, in Romans chapter 3, that word propitiation. And since that's what he's talking about here, the anger of God is not there forever. It's satisfied. It's taken care of. This is an expression of God's amazing loving kindness, his mercy. He goes on, he's got, to, he's got to tell us more about this gracious judge because he goes on to say, because he says he shows compassion, verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. Compassion on us. And how does that compassion describe? He says, he will tread our iniquities under his foot. Now, Maybe it's because I've just been reading through Joshua that my, that my mind goes to Joshua putting his feet on the necks of his enemies. They were to lie down and they were to put their feet on their necks. They were conquered. They were defeated. They, were, they could not rise. There was no hope at this point. And, and after they did this, they were, they were executed. And I believe there's something of the picture of that here, whether it's the putting of the, the foot on the neck of the enemy or whether it's going beyond that, just the, the treading of them down in the dust, just the crushing of their enemies in the dust. He says, this is what he does for our sins. He says, they, these transgressions that we have faced, he says, they are, they are tread under my foot. They have just become part of the mud and the dust that have no place anymore. And he says he cast them into the depths of the sea. The depths of the sea. We all know the, the Mariana Trench, and of course I had to do my Google search on the Mariana Trench for this one, but there's a place in the Mariana Trench which is called, maybe some of you know this, I didn't, the Challenger Deep, which is actually the deepest part of the ocean, the deepest part of, of the surface of the earth. 6.788 miles deep. 35,840 feet deep. When I fly, they usually say, we've reached our flying altitude. It's about 30,000 feet. So that's deeper than they take my, the plane above the earth when we fly to different places in the world. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me that he says they throws him into the depths of the sea. And when the scripture talks about that, the depths of the sea or the depths of the earth are places only God can reach. That's really the basic point. Man couldn't go there if he wanted to. There's no possibility of getting this back. You thought it was lost when it fell into the crack in your couch. God says, I cast this into the depths of the sea. It is so far gone, there is no possibility that any human being could draw this back up. This is my compassion. As a forgiving judge, I pardon sin. I pass over iniquities. I tread transgressions under my feet and they are gone. And then notice this little word. Yes, you cast all their sins in the depths of the sea. And these three words in, in the Hebrew, sins, 
iniquities and transgressions. In other words, any kind of sin, every kind of sin, and all of them, he says, when I pardon them, when I, when I pass by them, when I, as the judge, declare the sinner not guilty, every one of them is crushed in the dust and is cast into the depths of the sea, never to be brought up again. That's what a judge does. That's the kind of judge I would like to meet when I have to stand in a courtroom. Right? If I have to stand before a judge, and I have speeding tickets, that kind of thing, when I've had to do that kind of thing and stand before a judge, I would really like that judge to be this kind of judge. To be this kind of judge. He says, you know what? I'm going to forgive this. I'm going to pass over this. I am going to pardon this. I am going to satisfy the, the judgment that's against you so that there is no longer any guilt in, on, your, in your, on your record and there's no longer any punishment that you have to face. I've done it. That's the God that Micah looks at here. That's the God he, the picture of God that he, that he draws up before our minds and he says, this God is unique. Who is a God like this? Now, we all like gods like this, and we try to make gods like this, but this is the true and living God who is actually the judge. This is not just some earthly judge. This is not some local deity. This is the God of heaven and earth. This is the God who created all things by the word of his power. This is the God who upholds all things. Every atom in the universe, every little particle in the universe is under his control. And every star in the universe, every large item in the, in the entire universe, however large it might be, it's under his control and his power. It's his finger work, if you will. And that's the God that Micah looks at at the end of his prophecy, and he says, there is nobody like you, forgiving like you, loving like you, merciful like you. And he does it, it says in verse 20, according to his promises. The promises that he's made with his people in time past with Abraham and the forefathers. He's a faithful God who's going to fulfill his promises. And that really brings us to the last real part of this, this passage that spotlights the, the gracious judge. Is this forgiveness is, this, and this loving kindness is not for everyone. Notice carefully what it says. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, who passes over the transgression of the remnant of his possession. The remnant of his possession. He passes over the transgression of the remnant of his possession, of those who are his special people, but those who are particularly his preserved people. His people of choice. Now, if you look back with me at chapter 4, it's a very interesting group of people that he's talking about. Because it's not... The intellectual ones. It's not the wealthy ones. It's, it's not the high, powerful ones who are the remnant of his possession. He says in chapter 4 and verse 6, In that day, declares Yahweh, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. 
I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and Yahweh will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. For you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. My people, these lame ones, the Mephibosheths of the world, lame in both feet, incapable of carrying themselves around, incapable of providing for themselves. God says, these are the ones that are my special people, my remnant among all. I'm going to bring them together. These outcasts that the world thinks the least of. These even that have been under my chastening hand. These are the ones I forgive and I'm saving. It's my chosen people. And this blessing, he says, will come and last forever. Those are amazing promises. That God would pardon sin. That the God of the universe, who is the judge of all mankind, before whom one day we will stand ultimately, but we stand already, as it were, before his throne. And he says, he will pardon their sins. He will crush them under his feet. He will conquer them, deal with them, and put them away as far as the bottom of the sea. Sounds a little bit like the verse that was at the top of one of our hymns. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or verse 7, there's two verses before that, where the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. These are amazing promises. They sound too good to be true, but they're true. They're absolutely true. And that brings me then to the second point. What makes them so amazing? Our passage points to a deserved judgment. And here I'm going to have you have your Bibles open on your lap because we're going to look at different places in the book of Micah to just see who, to whom Micah is speaking these promises. But notice in our passage, he speaks of these things called sins, iniquities, and transgressions. He speaks of people who are guilty of sin, missing the mark, transgressions, going astray. They are iniquities. They've wandered. He said, these are the people that he's writing, that he's speaking to. And as we go back over this these chapters, these seven chapters of Micah, I want you to see just how horribly sinful these people were. This is one of the things that makes this so amazing, is that the people that he speaks these promises to are horribly sinful people. We see in chapter 1 and verse 7, right out of the gate, that they are idolaters. All their idols will be smashed. 
They've made their money in harlotry and probably a spiritual harlotry, but possibly even real prostitution. We see in chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, that they are those, again, who had carved images. They had pillars that were among them. Those that they bowed down to, the gods of, of the people in Canaan, the, the Asherim who were there, and, and this is what they did as well. We see in chapter 2 and verse 1 that they're guilty of scheming to do iniquity. They work out evil when they're on their beds so that when they get up in the morning, they can already be running. They hit the ground running, but they're not hitting the ground running serving the Lord. They're hitting the ground running doing their sin. Because they made their plans when they laid down on their beds. They're practicing sin. They're coveting. They're robbing. Chapter 2, verse 3 speaks of them being haughty. They will no longer walk as haughty. They're proud. Chapter 2 and verse 6. They say to, to Micah, don't preach to us these hard things. Stop it. We don't like you telling us that we're sinful. That's his job, right? Chapter 3 and verse 8 says, that's my job. As a preacher, this is what he was supposed to do. I am filled with power, with the spirit of Yahweh, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious acts, even to Israel his sin. Part of the job of the prophet was to let the, help the people see the sin that they were engaged in and the horribleness of that sin. That's what preachers do, partially. Why? So that we can read these promises about God forgiving sins and it means something. But they're horribly sinful people. They don't want to hear good searching preaching. In chapter 3, the politicians and the pastors and the preachers, to use more contemporary language to Micah, the leaders, the priests, and the prophets are all full of sin. There's no exceptions. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the politicians, the leaders are leading people, are treating people inhumanely. In verses 9 through 11, they're being selfish and cheating others for personal profit. It's buying up all the N95s at the beginning of 2020 and then reselling them at a markup of about 600%, that kind of thing. They see a, a woman, they say, well, let's take advantage of her. They see a, a child, they'll take advantage of them. In chapter 5 and verse 12, they're looking elsewhere for their, for their truths. They're looking to alternative places for truth and for sources of revelation. I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you will have fortune tellers no more. Chapter 6 and verse 3, they're bored with God. What have I done to weary you, he said. And this is a common thing we hear in one of the other prophets where he says, why do you sniff at my table? You're bored with God. I mean, going to church once a week is, is hard. Twice on the Lord's Day is rough. And going for Wednesday night, forget it. They're bored with God. 
Verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6, they're treating his mercy lightly. He's done so much for them. He rehearses to them what he's done for these people and all the spiritual blessings that they've been given over the years and how he protected them when Balaam, when Balak wanted to, to have a curse pronounced over them and he wouldn't allow it to happen. He was caring for them. And they said, what have you done with this? You've treated my gracious, my kindnesses to you lightly. You've despised them. In verses 11 and 12, they're guilty of lies. They're guilty of violence. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, Micah says, I'm like a, I'm like a, a grape picker that's going in after everybody else has cleared out the field. It's like there's nothing left. There is no godly person to be picked. There's blood on people's hands. They're ambidextrous when it comes to doing evil. Whether it's a right hand or the left hand, they do it all around. Verses 5 and 6, social disorder, distrust, contempt of authority, division even in the family. I want you to see one word back in chapter 1 and verse 9. I didn't look up all of the translations to see how each one translated, but the New American Standard translates it very poignantly when it says, Her wound is incurable. That's the kind of word you don't want to hear from your doctor. And sorry, your cancer is incurable. I'm sorry, your condition is incurable. I'm sorry, you'll have to live with this and die with this. It can't be cured. There is no treatment. That's how horribly sinful these people are. Were And they had no resources in themselves to be able to change anything. They could not fix it themselves. They are horribly sinful people. And my friends, that's not just Israel of old. That's every one of us by birth. And we come into the world with a sinful nature. We come into the world having sinned in our father Adam. And we no sooner start learning things than every gift that we get, we pretty much turn to do more sin and add to our guilt. We are no less sinful than the people of, of Israel. We should not stand back and say, oh, those terrible people during Micah's day. I'm glad that generation died off. Well, they may have, but their descendants live on. And in fact, the scriptures make it very plain, as we heard from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And even our righteous deeds that we try to do, those, those good things that we try to do, worshiping God, for instance, or, or going to the neighbor and, and helping them out, or, or seeking to, to bring a smile through doing some good thing to some person. He says the Bible tells us they are like filthy garments. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
By nature, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we hate the physician of our souls that has the antidote. We are at war with him. We are enemies with him by birth. Horrible, horrible condition. And there's, there's, there's more. Because not only does this passage point to the fact that we are horribly sinful, using those three words to describe our sin, it points to the fact that God is angry with sinners, and that is his righteous disposition towards sin, is to be angry. And so the second point under this deserved judgment is the terrifyingly wrathful God. Horribly sinful people. But that's worse when you realize that there is a judge who is a righteous judge full of wrath towards sin. Terrifyingly wrathful. He is a righteous God with unbending righteousness. That's why this courtroom scene keeps coming up. It's there in chapter 1. It's again found in chapter 6. Turn with me to chapter 6. Notice with me the first five verses of chapter 6. Hear now what Yahweh is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of Yahweh and you enduring foundations of the earth because Yahweh has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, my people. Remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of Yahweh. What he is going to do in, in threatening them with judgment is his righteous act. And so he says in the courtroom, come on, my people, sinners, stand up before me. Plead your case. I've got witnesses right here, a mountain, which is just as stubborn as you are. I have on this side the foundations of the earth, those monoliths of rock, which is just what you're like. You hear me just like those rocks hear me. Here's the witnesses. Bring your case. Let them hear. Let, let announce, let a promise, let a, a, a judgment be made. You're bored with me. I can prove it. Look at all that I've done for you and look at how you've treated me. He's a righteous judge. His judgments are righteous altogether. And he is angry with sin. It says in verse 9, The voice of Yahweh will call the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Basically saying, as in the words of 
of Dale Ralph Davis, hear and fear. Verses 10 through 12, you are guilty as charged because I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, am in every place seeing the evil and the good. Don't think you got away with it. What you call good business practices, I call cheating. I call it scales, which are lies. What you think is good negotiating practices, I call lying. I call it stealing. So God is angry with them because of their sin. And curses and judgment are coming because of their sin. We read in Habakkuk that the eyes of Yahweh are too pure to look upon evil. And that is to see it and to approve of it in any way. He cannot look on wickedness with favor. So you have this righteous judge. He sees everything. He's righteous in the judgments that he makes. He always declares guilt where there's guiltiness. He, he can't miss it. And it makes him angry. You see, I want you to understand here something. There's something that's extremely important in what I'm trying to drive home and what Micah is trying to drive home here. Sin will make a mess of your life. It just ruins things. If you get involved with illicit drugs, it'll rob you of pieces of your mind. It can ruin your body. If you get involved with illicit, immoral, immoral activities, it can lead to all kinds of diseases. It can break up families. And that's a horrible thing. Sad when I look at people's lives that are, that are marred and broken by the reality that sin has entered into their lives. Well, Micah says that's not the most important thing. As bad as bad decisions leading to hard consequences are, as bad as that might be, the worst thing is you have offended the God of heaven. Your sin has run contrary to his law and he is righteously angry with you. You stand, according to Romans 1.18, under his wrath, even now, judged as guilty right now if your sins have not been pardoned. This is what's so important and so difficult because it's going to lead to a terrifying judgment. Turn back to chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Yahweh is coming. And he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split like wax before the fire. Like water poured down a steep place. We think it's bad when we read about an earthquake in California. Let's just think about the whole world shaking and all the high places melting and all of the valleys turning into water and everything being taken out of place. And all of this is for the rebellion of Jacob and the sins of the house of Israel. 
He's going to smash their idols. Oh, my friends, be careful what you make an idol. Because that which you make your idol, God may smash. One day he will smash it. And he may do it to get your attention even here. If he did, you should be thankful. But beware. God is terrifying in his judgment. Verse 12. The inhabitant of Meroth becomes weak, waiting for good, because a calamity has come down from Yahweh to the gate of Jerusalem. The calamity has come. And in verse 3 of chapter 2, the calamity cannot be removed from them. In chapter 3 and verse 12, we read, Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the temple will become high places of a forest. And these are just pictures of what God did to his people in the old covenant as a nation, and have nothing to compare to what God will do on the final judgment day. When he comes down and he brings all men to stand before him, Nahum picks up on this in the very next book. And he describes the same kind of judgment coming upon another nation. So we understand this is not just Israel, but it's all those who stand in opposition to God, who are not forgiven their sins by God according to his way. In verse 2 of Nahum chapter 1, a jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for his enemies. Yahweh is slow to anger and great in power. And Yahweh will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way. We think that tornadoes and level five hurricanes create devastation. They are nothing compared to the whirlwind of God's wrath. When Jeremiah in Lamentations looks around and sees what the hurricane of God's wrath has done and wiped out the people of God because they would not repent. Think of that as a universal, worldwide reality. Clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Even the rich places like Bashan and Carmel and lower Manhattan and Singapore and China, they wither. Even the biggest and the strongest trees are just like little flowers that just dry up. In the face of the wrath of God. He is terrifying in his judgment. And his judgment comes according to his righteous evaluation of the lives of the people in front of him. And just like exile came to God's people of old, the final judgment will come to every sinner outside of Christ. We heard it. In Romans 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Right now, we're already condemned. 
Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said, For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And if you, like the people in Jesus' day, look back at Israel and say, oh, they must be much worse than I am, much worse than us. Then you hear Jesus' words and he says, wait a minute, you thought those that that tower fell upon? You thought those who who had their blood mixed with sacrifices, do you think they were bad? He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And I say, looking at Micah, if I've painted a picture of your life, You are outside of the forgiveness that God provides through Christ alone. You are in a terrifyingly dangerous place. Because the stone which the builders rejected is the place where you will stumble. And it will fall upon you and crush you. Well, that ought to give you the next question. We've seen... The gracious judge, but the deserved judgment. And and said, whoa, wait a minute. How can this judge say he's going to forgive such people when he's a righteous God who's going to bring judgment? How can these two fit together? Well, Micah tells us. There's a divine provision. God has provided. Now, if you look with me at, at... Micah chapter 6, and this is where I really began my uh, preparations, and I was thinking of preaching on Micah 6, 8, but we'll get to that in a minute. But Micah 6, 6 and 7, people say, well, you know what, that, if that's the case, I, I better go to church more often. Now, I better put a little bit more in the offering plate. Now, I better stop doing this kind of sin, which is clearly wrong. And I better, better stop doing that, and I better give something big to God. Micah asks the questions on behalf of God. With what shall I come to Yahweh and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come with burnt offerings and yearling calves? Let me do what the law says. Does Yahweh take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? We'll We'll just multiply this over and over again. Certainly that might help, right? Or or what if I go further than that? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I'll even give that which is most precious to me. Would that be enough? Well, we know God says, no, that's not enough because it's my firstborn that has to die, not yours. You see... It's not about doing more. Those are insufficient human provisions. God, though, provides a powerful deliverer and a Bethlehem shepherd. The same person who can set us free. Look at with me back at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. 
After telling them of the judgment that is to come and the reasons for that judgment, he then comes in chapter 2, verses 12 and says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. These are my chosen people within Israel. These are, these are those who are my true sheep. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of, of its pasture. They will be noisy with men. It says it's, it's not going to be a small group. The, the, the field's going to be really filled, but it's still going to just be a remnant. But I'm going to bring them together. And the breaker, I believe that is the description of the Messiah. The breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and Yahweh at their head. He says, here's my provision for you. I will send you a deliverer who can break the bonds of your captivity, who can set you free and gather together my sheep into one fold. He has the power to be able to break that which binds you so that you can be brought together. And he as Yahweh, the divine one, will go before you. He will lead you. This one will gather God's flock. God says, I will gather. I will surely collect. They will be redeemed remnant of the sheep. Their bondage will be broken. And again, we know from chapter 5 and verse 2, Right, we'll come to this in the next one, the, the Bethlehem shepherd. We know from chapter 5 and verse 2, this is talking about Jesus. This is what Jesus is going to accomplish. And we know that also from the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. We read of Jesus' work. Therefore, since the children shall share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about the resurrection and Christ having been raised from the dead, he says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So see this one who's going to break the power that binds us, that keeps us from following Yahweh as he, as he requires us to do. The one who is going to set us free is going to set us free, free through his death. He's going to set us free and lead us, having laid down his life and taken it up again. But notice with me, this deliverance is, is more than just deliverance from physical, earthly enemies. Look with me at chapter 5. Because it is also deliverance from the bondage to sin. Notice what this deliverance looks like in chapter 5. Yahweh says, It will be in that day that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and tear down all your fortifications. You say, well, that doesn't sound like it's, it's very good. He says, yeah, well, you know what? I'm going to take away all your false hopes. 
You thought your chariots could save you? You thought your cities could... No, I'm going to take all of that out of the way. I am going to remove all of that. I am going to cut off your sorceries. I'm, you will have no fortune tellers anymore. I'm going to cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you that you will no longer bow down to, to the work of your hands. I will root out your asherim from among you and destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance and anger and wrath on the nations which have not obeyed. This is a picture not of judgment upon Israel as much as deliverance for Israel. I'm going to deliver you from all those false hopes. I'm going to deliver you from all of those sins that you've been in, engaged in. And I will lead you. The divine provision is a powerful deliverer. But the divine provision, as I've also said, and we see in chapter 5 and verse 2, is the Bethlehem shepherd. They covet fields and, went and then seize them and houses and take them away. Excuse me, that's chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 5 and verse 2, sorry. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time. So there's going to be a time of judgment and comes before, but the Messiah is coming. The Bethlehem shepherd is coming. If you don't think this speaks of Jesus, look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, or Luke chapter 2, verse 4 where this passage is referred to. Or, Matt, or in John chapter 7 and verse 42, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Here's the shoot of Jesse, who's going to come on the scene and deliver his people. Here is Yahweh's deliverer, chapter 5 and verse 4. He will, be, he will arise and shepherd in the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty of the name of Yahweh his God. And they will remain, because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. And he, this one, will be our peace. You see, Micah, in his vision, tells us where the provision is for this, these horrible sinners who face this terrifyingly powerful God and his judgment. He says, where then can we look? How can this be resolved? It's resolved by the one who will come and break your chains and set you free from your sin. It's going to be resolved by the shepherd that God will raise up, who will himself, as we know from John chapter 10, lay down his life for his people, who will gather together all of his flock, and it will last forever because no one can snatch them out of his hand or the Father's hand. And this one, this shepherd from Bethlehem, will be our peace. We are at war with God when we're no, not in Christ. We are his enemies. But while we were his enemies, while we were helpless, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And we will be delivered from wrath through his resurrection. He's our peace. We are... We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He is our peace, Ephesians 2.14. He himself is our peace, both with God and with those around us. He will be the child who will be born, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Here is where there is the provision provided by God, whereby horrible sinners can be made right with God and can read this promise that God makes through his prophet Micah and know that it applies to you. You see, it doesn't apply to everybody who just wants to choose it and say, you know what, I'd kind of like to be free from this, this guilty conscience that bothers me because I cheated on this test or I lied to this person or I lusted after that person or I stole from that person or I don't care about God's timing ruling my life and giving him his day or I don't or I use his name frivolously, or I worship him and do things the way I want to and think I, he's got to bow to me when I approach him, or, or I worship other gods like my kids, or my job, or my things, or I covet in my heart with my words or my acts. He'll cover all that. He'll set you free from all those things. He is the one who can smash all that bondage. Oh, but it's been years, Pastor. Doesn't matter. He set free the chief of sinners in the Apostle Paul. He can set you free. He died for the chief of sinners. His blood can avail for you. His blood can cleanse from all your sins. And those sins will be crushed to dust and cast into the bottom of the sea where no one can raise them again. But only in His Redeemer, only in His Deliverer, and in no other way and in no other place is there provision to be found except in his Redeemer. He is the one who was born of a woman who came into this world who was called Jesus and Emmanuel who would save his people from their sins. He alone is the propitiation in his blood that can deliver us. He alone is our propitiation, the satisfier of the wrath of God through His own sacrifice. He alone can turn God's anger away so that we can read these words. He does not retain His anger forever. This is what we have in Christ Jesus. One who became like us, who took upon him flesh and blood, that he might deliver us from the fear of death, that he might conquer Satan and his power over us, that he might deliver us from living in this present evil age. What a wonderful set of promises. What a glorious truth. 
that the faithful God, having made such promises, will fill, fulfill those promises in Christ Jesus. But that leaves me with one last thing, and it's Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8 says this. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Yahweh require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Oh, so I just need to do those things? This is not talking about things you do. This is talking about what repentance looks like. We read about it in 2 Corinthians 7. In other words, he's saying, hey, you people who committed injustice, it's not just good enough to stop doing that. You must do justice. You must treat people fairly, righteously, according to my standards. And it's not just enough that you stop doing this and you do this. You must love doing mercy to people. You must love and delight in showing loving kindness. In other words, you've got to act like me. I'm the one who does acts justly, and I'm the one who is the one who shows loving kindness. And you have to do all of this humbled before me, contrite and broken before me. Isaiah, 52, Isaiah 57, verse 15, the contrite and lowly of spirit. This is what you need to do. Humble yourself before God. Live in the fear of God. This is what repentance looks like. Stop these things, turn from these sins, and follow after God. Or in Jesus' words, take up your cross daily and follow Him. And walk in His steps. Stop living for self. Stop serving yourself. Stop your proud idolatry and humbly worship the true and living God. My friends. These promises are too good to be true, except in God's economy. They would be absolutely folly without Jesus Christ. But they are absolutely certain in Jesus Christ that your sins can be forgiven, pardoned, passed over. God being no longer angry, but delighting in showing loving kindness, compassionate in treading your sins under himself and putting them far away from you so they can no longer be brought up against you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What wonderful promises. My friend, if you're a child of God, lay hold of those promises and delight in those promises. It doesn't matter how many times you fall. Go back to Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and lay hold of these promises that he will forgive you again. There's no expiration date on these promises. Well, there is actually, but it comes when Christ returns. When we won't need them. But until then... They're there for you, child of God. Don't wallow in your, in your guilt and self-pity and, and try to make it up yourself. And No, you can't add anything to Christ. Repent of your sins, hate your sins, and then flee to Him. See that there is mercy in Him. To, you can apprehend there's mercy. He will forgive your sins. Go to Him. 
Go to him again and again and again. But I say to some of you who've sat here year after year or are sitting here this morning even for the first time, maybe you walked into church, you said, I didn't know what to expect, but these people talk like Christians and I know it was a Christian church, so Baptist church, so I walked in and you didn't know what you were going to face. Now you've heard that there's a problem and the problem is your sin. And the problem is that God is angry because of your sin. But there's a solution to all of that in Jesus Christ. And now you've heard it. So do not neglect so great a salvation. Do not be one of those that God says, I've done so much for you. I've preached to you through man after man after man, parent after parent, Sunday school teacher after Sunday school teacher. I've preached to you, I've brought to you the truth that there's salvation in Jesus Christ and you are bored with me. Don't be that person. See the danger you're in and go to Jesus Christ right now. Flee to him. And say, I, I don't understand all this, but this guy's telling me that I'm a sinner. And I, I know that. It's too obvious. I see it, what I'm hiding from others. But I know it's there. I know the pride. I know the, the sin of the heart and the sin of the tongue and the sins of my actions. I know it. And he tells me Jesus is my only hope. God, if Christ died for sinners, then save me through Jesus Christ. Go to him today. Repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Go to the great deliverer king. Go to the Bethlehem shepherd who can set you free, who, can, who died for sinners, who is a fully sufficient, the only sufficient answer to sin and to wrath. There are people in this room who have wept over you. Parents who have wept. So they pled with God. Micah has this horrible message, this challenging message. Not a horrible message, but a challenging message, a terrifying message. And it leads him just to want to weep. He says, I must lament and wail. Woe is me. We're weeping before God that he would be pleased to be gracious to you and that you to the, this day would hear and go to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, we plead with you that you would grant to some parents and to each one of us in some measure the joy of seeing sinners turning from their sin and walking in the truth today. Would you be pleased, O oh God, to come in power and in grace and save sinners. And comfort your people who are wrestling with their sins that they might find that peace through the forgiveness that there is in Christ Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.